Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where the guests are unique, but the goal is the same, improving our lives by standing on the shoulders of giants. My guest today is Jeremy Anderberg. Jeremy is the managing editor and podcast producer at Art of Manliness, your one-stop resource for actionable advice that covers every aspect of a man's life. When he's not working at Art of Manliness, Jeremy is reading and writing his newsletter about what he's reading. Jeremy has read at least one biography of every single U.S. president, and he recently published an article recommending his favorites. In this episode, Jeremy and I discussed what it means to be a man, simple self-improvement tips, growing a podcast to over 100 million downloads, and his thoughts on newsletters. Of course, we also spent a lot of time talking about books and U.S. history. Before we get to the show, I have one quick ask. If you enjoy this episode, please sign up for my email list. Jump over to josephcwells.com to sign up, and you'll receive one email from me every Friday with the best curated content to help you live a more balanced, effective, and happy life. All right, that's enough from me. Now, fasten your earbuds, grab your notebooks, and enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Anderberg. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. You are the managing editor at The Art of Manliness. If you had to define manliness in a couple sentences, how would you do it? Sure, that's a great question. So I think it's something that sort of changes with each generation and each generation of of men has to sort of define it for themselves. I think in today's world, it's very much um, kind of a a multi-skilled idea. So it's someone who can do, um, you know, sort of businessy professional skills, who can close a deal, someone who can handle domestic duties, changing a diaper, making a meal in the kitchen, right? And then someone who has sort of outdoor, real world DIY skills, right? Who can build a fire, change the oil on their car if needed, um, stuff like that. Then also, right, those are sort of the hard skills, but there's soft skills too, like uh, taking responsibility, owning up to your, uh, your mistakes and failures and also your successes, and also being someone who can uh, step up to the plate and lead in times of need which I think is especially apparent, you know, in the last year, there've been a lot of opportunities for folks to lead and also for folks to kind of show that they can't lead. So I think, uh, yeah, just, you know, a, a couple lines that sort of sums up how I, how I see manliness today. Yeah. I've had this conversation with my fiance and she's, you know, she's a very, um, strong, independent woman, right? She's, um, a doctor. She can take care of herself and do kind of all the all the things that you just listed there and you know she posed the question to me like what does it mean to be a man or to be manly so my question to you is is there anything distinctly um manly that is on that list that maybe may not apply to a woman yeah that's a good question i don't know you know i maybe you know a couple of decades ago you would have said yes right like the man provides the man sort of leads in other scenarios where um you know it, it may not be up to a woman but in today's world i really i just i think all of those barriers are coming down um and you can clearly see you know there there used to be this idea that the women were too temperamental for leadership but obviously i mean gosh see the last year plenty of men have been temperamental and emotional right like it's not these things kind of cross over in, in strange ways. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure there's anything that's truly distinctly manly. Um, you know, that, that might be uh, a different answer than what some guys would say, but I'm just, I'm not sure I can think of anything, honestly. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I like that answer. And that's, you know, I, th- I think I would have thought of manliness as something that is, you know, very distinct to, a man, but as she posed that question to me, and as I thought about it more, I thought, well, any anything that I would define on that list doesn't really make me manly. It just makes me an effective, responsible person, and isn't right. that what we should all be striving for? So right. it's interesting to see how the idea of manliness, the the context of that, has kind of changed over the decades. It has, yeah. It, it sort of changes with every generation. You know, it meant something 
very different in the early 1800s, right? When men wore wigs and, you know, dressed very nicely and everything was about honor to, you know, it changed again a hundred years later when Teddy Roosevelt was sort of ushering in a new era of manliness that was all about outdoor vigor and, and taking action. Um, and then you got into like 1950s and 60s manliness, which was very businessy, leave it to Beaver, right? Man should be a man at the office and sort of work and provide for his family. And now it's changing again and the, and the roles are just becoming even more fluid, which I think is just great. You know, I also have a very um, independently minded wife and we kind of do all the same things really just at, at different times, you know, and there's not really anything that that I would do that that she wouldn't be able to do. So, yeah. Mm. Tell me about the art of manliness. What is it and what do you guys do? Sure. So the website's been around since 2008. So we're what, 13 years in now, which seems crazy. I have been with the, the website full-time for about eight of those years. So it was started uh, by my supervisor and editor-in-chief, Brett McKay. And the impetus was you know, his sitting in a Barnes & Noble and seeing the men's magazines on the shelf and just being really unimpressed, right? It was all how to get six-pack abs, the coolest cars on the market, right? How to wow your lady in bed, that kind of stuff. Uh, and he just thought it was so shallow. So we started like, you know, what would be like the men's magazine that my my dad or my grandpa would be reading, right? What kind of stuff would that mm. be? So he started it. The very first article was how to shave like your grandpa with an old school safety <laughs> razor. Um, and there's, you know, stuff about keeping your marriage strong. It wasn't about like, you know, scoring one night stands on weekends and stuff like that. So the idea was that it would sort of be a, a range of things, right? It would cover philosophy self-improvement, real life skills, sort of all of that style, fitness, um, kind of sort of like any other men's interest magazine, but with kind of a, a higher ideal of helping men grow up well. That's kind of our mm. impetus um, and sort of guiding men along the journey um, from, you know, being a teenager to having kids to, you know, style when you're older, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we've been at it for about 13 years. We post a couple, oh, probably a handful of text articles a week, plus, you know, illustrated how-tos. And then we also do a podcast twice a week. We're coming up on episode 700. So we've been doing that for a while. Uh, and that's, yeah, the aim is everything we do, we hope to sort of inspire action, whether it's something fun or something, uh, you know, a little more meaningful. Sure. So you post about a diverse array of topics from, yeah. you know, like you said, fitness to college and career to style. Um, you cover the whole gamut. Is there any specific article or podcast that stands out to you as getting the most positive feedback? Like what are guys jazzed up to read and listen to? Sure. That's actually changed over the years, interestingly enough. Uh, you know, it, it used to be a lot of style content, uh, which that in the last years obviously changed. People aren't going out. Uh, and specific, specifically in the last year, there's been a huge uptick in our fitness content, but ultimately still what does the best is, uh, stuff related to self-improvement. So habits, uh, reading lists, you know, how to get more out of your reading, stuff like that. And that, uh, seems to be kind of the, the prime category that, that tends to get the most eyes. Yeah. Mm. I recently read an article on the Art of Manliness site about a guy who wore a tie to work every day for a year. Yeah. I thought that was a cool one. He talks about over the course of that year, he noticed more recognition, a bigger raise than his peers, more responsibility. He even avoided layoffs when I think everyone else at his level was was laid off. And he caveats the article with the advice that you can't wear a tie and do shitty work and expect good results. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Right. But when you already have like this good baseline as being a solid worker, adding something like a tie can be a game changer. And I think that a lot of life is like this. So I'm wondering what are some other really simple things that a man can do to level up? Yeah, that's a great article. And that's one interestingly, you know, it sort of combines like self-improvement with like this little style tip, right? Kind of like you said, so there's a lot of things, you know, in general, what we sort of espouse is that if you want to, you know, feel like a man, if you want to feel more confident, like a leader, uh, really the easiest way is to fake it until you make it, 
you know, if you don't feel like you're confident, just stand up straight uh, and sort of pretend like you do and you'll naturally feel more confident. It's um, one of those things that was mentioned in uh, Jordan Peterson's book, The 12 Rules for Life, right? He has a chapter about just Mm. standing up straight. And it's like this really silly thing, but I have tried it in my life, right? I'm someone who tends to walk into a room sort of demurely and um, often have my head down on the sidewalk and I, your shoulders not necessarily like slumped, but I'm, I'm certainly not making an effort to be erect in my posture. Right. But then uh, after I read that book, after I sort of uh, took some of those ideas and fake it till you make it to heart, I just started standing up straighter and you really, you feel it, right. You just, you feel like you're taller than you really are. Uh, you come in with more confidence when you hold your chin just a little higher than you naturally would. So I think like that simple idea to just stand up straight can make a really big difference. And we're also into the idea of, of tiny habits. So little things that you mm. can do every day consistently that make an outsized impact. So there's these like little keystone habits that BJ Fogg talks about in his book, uh, Tiny Habits. And, you know, there's like little things like flossing your teeth, right? But if you can make a habit of actually doing it every day, it sort of proves to yourself that you can do something every day to improve yourself, Right. So if you just take that one minute to floss, it can sort of give you the confidence to say, oh, I can I can work out every day or I can work a little bit on my novel every day or my other, you know, whatever side hustle every day. Uh, so, you know, between that sort of just those little physical cues, plus also finding one little thing that you can do every day to boost your confidence, I think make a, a huge difference in a man's life. I like that idea. And I like the point about giving yourself confidence to do big things by doing little things. One of the things that I do is make my bed every single day. So I usually get up and I go to the gym shortly afterwards. And before I even go to the gym, I make sure the bed is made like immaculate, right? Like I want it to look like somebody at the hotel just made my bed. And so many people just don't get that. They're like, why, why do you care if your bed is made? But it's not so much that the bed is made. It's that I've controlled something that I have control over. And I've done it first thing in the day so that if I encounter other things throughout the day that kind of introduce entropy and I don't have control over, I've had that little win to just kind of set the tone for the day up front. So I love these like tiny atomic habit type things that really just, it it sets you on a trajectory that people don't understand the importance of, but it makes a big difference in the long run. Yeah. I think it's especially important too, like at the very beginning of the day, right? it kind of brings order right away to a day that can quickly turn into chaos, right? If your alarm goes mm. off late, whatever, doing something small right at the beginning kind of gets things in order. Yeah. It's really powerful. Jeremy, I'm interested in hearing more about your career path. So you mentioned you've been with Art of Manliness for about eight years. How did you initially land that job? Sure. Yeah, that, man, it was kind of a, a long sort of strange route to there. So uh, I graduated from college with a degree in, in journalism and public relations. Uh, and that was mm. back in 2010, I believe. Yeah, a little over a decade ago. And uh, my first real full-time job out of college was as a, a social media uh, director for an agency that did social media. So it was, you know, writing blog posts, scheduling tweets for a number of different clients. Uh, ultimately that business went under, so I was laid off and sort of in the meantime, while I was looking for other work, I started a side hustle that was just proofreading and editing articles, you know, blog posts, stuff like that. So I had a really simple, just pamphlet style website, basically. Uh, and I had been a reader of the art of manliness throughout college. I'd kind of caught on when they first went viral back in, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, and so Art of Manliness posted, Brett wrote an article about uh, how to start a side hustle, tips for doing it. It was right when I had started mine. So I commented on that article, which is the first time I think I'd ever commented on a blog post, right? I was, I was a reader, but like never an internet commenter. Uh, but I was trying to sell myself a little bit, you know, I said, hey, this is, this is my website. Here's some things I've done to sort of be successful. And then Brett emailed me the next day and said, hey, we've been looking for someone new to proofread our articles and to just give them a quick edit. And so I uh, got started that way, just on a, a freelance 
um, very much part-time basis for about six months. And then they brought me on full-time. So I started really as just kind of proofreader and admin, you know, just kind of doing little things as much as I could. And then over the years, I've worked my way up to, to managing editor and podcast producer. So I work with uh, guest writers. I work with advertisers. I kind of um, manage basically anything that goes up onto the website. I'm hitting publish on and giving a once over. And then with the podcast, I'm doing everything on the guest side. So I'm kind of coordinating guests, uh, working with the advertisers on that part as well. So as a three-person team, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, uh, but that's kind of the the gist of it. I'm really interested to hear about how the advertising works on the show. Can you kind of talk me through, you know, who some of your advertisers are, how you find them, how you structure the deals? Sure. So we actually work with uh, Stitcher, and uh, which is part of Midroll. So Midroll actually handles all of our ad sales. So they do all of the selling and it's really, you know, to kind of like any of, of the ads you hear on other shows, right? ZipRecruiter, uh, Salesforce, sometimes uh, Saks Underwear for Men, right? So it's some of those, those same big name companies you hear kind of all over the podcast. And part of that is because so when, when Midroll sells an advertiser, they're often selling to a, a variety of shows, a spectrum of mm. things that would, that would fit their brands. Um, and so which is what's great about working with an agency like that is that we don't have to do any of the selling. We can just focus on producing the content and they take care of all the rest. So really all we do is uh, read the ads basically from the script they give us, edit them, and then kind of tell uh, the folks where to insert them into the show. And uh, what's great now is that podcast advertising has gotten uh, a little smarter in that they can sell ads for our backlist titles as well. So it's all dynamically inserted. So there's nothing that's like built into the specific episode audio. All we're doing is basically we're creating a break in the show and then their software will insert ads as needed. And then for however many ads uh, a company buys, then uh, once those number of listens are up, then it'll stop playing that ad and then it'll just insert one of our own house ads for, you know, our, our books or one of our courses or whatever. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's all a, a pretty smooth operation on the ad front. It's certainly a lot easier than, uh, than reading it right into the audio, right? Cause then it gets stale after 30 to 60 days. Uh, and we don't have to do the selling, which is, you know, often often takes more time than like doing the podcast itself so sure yeah that that auto insertion is really cool i hadn't heard about that before yeah it's really nice so at this point in the show you've got like you said almost 700 episodes over 100 million downloads so it's probably pretty easy to book guests at this point but i'm gonna ask you a two-part question here what sure. was your strategy and process for booking guests earlier in the life of the show? And then mm-hmm. at what point did the show start to grow exponentially? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that I've, I've answered for a number of folks uh, and that I think has been helpful. So what I did early on was I created a script for reaching out. So I'd mm-hmm. say, you know, and I sort of kept it short and sweet to the point. So I'm the managing editor for this show. I would link to our, our podcast page, say, here's some folks we've had on before. Um, so, you know, early on in the, the early life of podcasting, it was, it was sort of easy to get bigger name guests because it was kind of new. People didn't really know, like, you know, what, what was going on. So we had like Nick Offerman on really early. Um, we had, I don't remember the guy's name, but the guy who played Rich in uh, Mad Men, we had him on the show kind of early on. And then, you know, what's nice is that those are just a couple of names you can put out there and say, hey, we've had these people on the show also. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely like to make everyone personal, right? I'm, I'm using a form sort of, right? but it's more of a, a template for format versus like actual content. So, you know, I'll start, start off with that line saying, hey, I'm the managing editor. Here's our podcast. We do a Q&A style interview show. Uh, we really enjoyed your book or your work in this way. I think our audience would really appreciate your specific insights. 
in this way, right? Here's what I think you can kind of bring to our show. And that's about it. And I'll say, you know, past guests have included this person and this person. We've had business folks, historians, academics from a, a wide range of, uh, of specialties and, and industries. You know, thanks for the consideration. And that's about it. And I would send that either to, you know, a direct contact, either email address uh, would be on their website, right? But the better route has actually, uh, in my finding, has been to go through like the, the publisher or the publicist specifically. Mm. So almost all of our guests are authors, which makes it a little easier uh, when you can go like sort of straight to their their publicist at a, a publisher and say, hey, we want to get this person. The publicist is, is always eager for that kind of attention. So they're quick to respond. Um, and then the key, you know, is if I don't hear something, I think a lot of people just often give up give up after the, the first shot. Mm-hmm. But I always follow up probably a week or two later, send another email, say, hey, we'd still love to get you on the show. Uh, you know, let me know if there's anything we can do to do that. If I don't hear anything from them in that way, then I'll, I'll send them a tweet, a direct message on Instagram, right? I'll kind of do this like third cold reach out. Um, and if that doesn't work, I'll kind of consider it a lost cause. But the other thing is just persistence. So there's some like big name authors like uh, like Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, mm-hmm. she wrote Team of Rivals and a couple others. Uh, she was someone who I I just sort of cold emailed every six months for <laughs> three or four years until finally she you know said, yeah, I'll you know have a a new book coming out. I'll I'll come on and um, and there you go. So it's definitely like just about persistence. And keeping your reach outs short and sweet, being able to just land like like one name that that people can recognize can mm-hmm. really help things out a lot. And you just have to ask, right? So um, even um, folks that you wouldn't think would say yes, you have a better chance if you just ask uh, instead of just writing yourself off right away, saying, "Oh, they're too big a name; they would never read my email." Um, you wouldn't believe like how even big name celebrities read their own emails, right? They mm-hmm. like to be flattered just like anyone else. Um, and so I think, I think you just have to put yourself out there and, and make a couple couple different contact points and eventually eventually you'll get there. So at what point did the show start to like really take off? Sure. So uh, there's probably, oh, three or 400 episodes in, right? So the biggest thing, like, man, people ask me, now, you know, what advice do you have uh, if you were to start a podcast? And I would say, well, like the first thing I would say would be like to start 10 years ago, yeah. <laughs> get in on get in on the ground floor. But then the second thing is just persistence and consistency, right? So if you keep doing it every week or, if, you know, if you have a, a regular schedule, um, eventually you'll reach, you know, that, that Glidewell tipping point mm. um, where things will start coming your way. So for us, it was a point where we had enough sort of big name guests had come on. So we had had like Tony Robbins, Ariana Huffington, I said, Nick Offerman, some of those bigger names that then I could sort of just pitch those names in my email, say, these are folks we've had on. And then I could kind of get anyone to say yes. Mm. And then the the other part of that then is to making or forging relationships with a lot of the publicists in the book world. So over time, I've, I've sort of come to know contacts at all of the major publishing houses mm-hmm. and that makes a huge difference right so for any any new book coming out any author you know coming out with something um you can look on their amazon page as to who the publisher is and then uh, i can just kind of look in my my spreadsheet of who i know at that publisher and reach out and say hey you know can we get a, a review copy of the book can we get this person on the show um so ultimately it's sort of a, a combination of persistence but then also just building up the network over time. So it's just like anything, right? Any, any overnight success is actually five or 10 years in the making. And that was no different for, for us. So, right. Right. Yeah. Are, are you the one who does the research for the guests, like to prepare for the show? Uh, it's sort of a team effort. Yeah. So the way it works now is we're at a point where uh, publishers are pitching us a lot and guests are okay. pitch, pitching us. Right. So I'll get on my doorstep every week five to 10 books hitting my door. Uh, and it's kind of my job to, to go through and filter out. So the three of us on three full-time folks on the team, 
uh, we all sort of look through the books that land in front of us and we'll look through, you know, we even like go to bookstores and look for books that we think are interesting, mm-hmm. um, kind of all comb through and then put a guess who we think would be a good fit onto this master list of ideas. And then we'll look and see uh, like, okay, we like to go for a variety every month. We like to hit different categories of shows, right? So history, fitness, self-improvement, et cetera. We like to keep it broad. And then we'll kind of add them to the, the reach out next list. And then what I do is I will vet the folks. So I'll listen to an interview or two that they've done just to make sure they're a good fit, mm-hmm. charismatic enough to be on the show. Um, and then I'll reach out when it comes to doing uh, like the actual question prep. That's almost always Brett. And he uh, sets himself apart by actually reading the entirety of the book that he's talking about, man, you wouldn't believe how many folks just like read a PR blurb and then mm. do the interview don't actually know anything about the book, right? So we get a ton of compliments from authors and from guests just for the fact that we we know the material, that Brett knows the material in and out, comes up with good questions. And then, of course, you know, over the, the course of the last 10 years of doing it, he's become a great interviewer. Um, and then on the back end, the editing process is kind of Brett and his wife doing the cuts. And then I'm the one working with our, our editor, who's a freelancer, um, to do the actual audio cuts. So it's very much a, a team effort from start to finish. Yeah. I love what you said about Brett actually reading the whole book to me. I mean, I, I don't yeah. put out a lot of podcasts, so maybe my view isn't realistic, but it seems like it is based on, on what you're saying. I think that if you're going to ask somebody to take the time to come on your show, it's only respectful to take the time to read the piece of work that they spent months or years putting together. and. Right. I had Peter Bogosian on my show about a year ago, and okay. his, own, his only request was that people interviewing him had read the book, right? So, of course, I read oh, the book. Yeah. I took three or 4,000 words of notes on the book, and early in the interview, I asked him a question about one of the concepts in the book. I said, can you kind of like give us a, a rundown of this concept? And he said, sure, I can, but I'd really like to know how you would explain the concept. And, of course, I knew it. Oh, and interesting. I, I laid yeah. it out for him and he goes, Oh, you really have read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah. From that point on, the conversation was great. And it was just kind of like I had this key and I had opened the door and earned his respect by taking the time to read the book that I was asking him to talk about. You know, that right. just seems like such a, a common sense thing to me that I guess a lot of people don't do. Yeah. Yeah. You really wouldn't believe it. Cause I think part of it is, is just so many pitches come in. Right. And like, if it's a, a bigger name person or, um, a, you know, an idea you're excited about, you'll kind of just say, oh yeah, I'd love to talk about this. Say yes. Time comes for interview. You haven't done a ton of prep. You're just kind of going with the table of contents, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's really something small uh, that, that certainly can set you apart for sure. I think it makes the interviews better. Definitely. Yeah. Why don't you guys publish uh, a video podcast? It's a great uh, question. So we used to publish more videos to YouTube. We have quite a large following on YouTube, actually, but it really just comes down to uh, just like we don't enjoy doing video. Mm. So, you know, we like doing text. We like doing um, audio podcast. And so that's what we stick to. We do. uh, We put some shows up on an audio form, um, like just with the, the fireplace background, you know. Uh, but yeah, it just comes down to kind of like our, our own sensibilities as a team. Like we don't really like it. So, so why, why do it really? It's kind of a, a simple answer, really. You don't like doing the work or you don't like the actual video component of like, you don't, you don't want to watch a video podcast. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think, um, it's not something you know, there's like a, a video component, especially I think for like Brett sits in his closet and does his podcast. Mm. You could throw him off a little bit from his game, right? If he's like paying attention to his little icon down in the corner or um, having to worry about, you know, the visual aspect, it really lets you hone in on the audio, which is the point of the thing anyway, right? Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just a matter of, of just trying to, to keep it simple. Oh, yeah. I've heard Tim Ferriss, I think, say the same thing. Like he prefers doing audio only because then he can look at his notes you know, he doesn't get thrown right. off by looking at the other person, which 
you know, he's obviously a pro. You guys are pros. We, right. uh, we lesser podcasters should take cues from that. But I just find there to be a much better rapport being able to look the other person in the eye and see the body language and, and read like when you're smiling and that kind of stuff. It, it's helpful to me, but I, I suppose sure. it's not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to know. I mean, it's something, you know, we, we certainly might consider. We just, we've been doing it audio for so long because 10 years ago, that was the option, right? Um, yeah. And so we haven't, you know, haven't really considered uh, changing it, but um, we, we may, you know, as it's certainly something that, uh, that comes up more of most of our guests ask if it's, you know, video or audio only. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. You know, maybe, maybe there's something for us to learn from, uh, from the younger bucks. So. Could be. Yeah. I'm excited to discuss your newsletter and your reading habit. So when we decided to record this podcast, I reached out to a friend who follows art of manliness, listens to the podcast a lot, reads the writing. Uh, to tell him that you were coming on the show and he was stoked. And this is, I'm going to read verbatim what he wrote to me in a text. And he was referring to you when he said this, he said, the books he gets through and writes about on a weekly basis is just mind blowing. I've probably chosen 80% of the books I read based on his recommendations. I see him and Blas Moros as the two most widely and interesting read people I follow and listen to closely. Mm. It was quite a ringing endorsement. Yeah, yeah, that's great to hear. <laughs> so this person was referring to your your weekly Substack called sure. "What to What to Read Next." Can you give me the high level description of that newsletter? Sure. So it uh, started uh, about three years ago. Uh, it was, the impetus is very simple. I was just meeting with a an author friend um, who's trying to to pitch his book for the Art of Manliness podcast, and I was telling him how much I read. He said, oh, you should, you know, start a newsletter. I think other people would love to hear what you're reading. Um, that little kernel stuck with me. And so I started it um, sort of halfway foolishly, like a month before my daughter was born a few years ago. <laughs> so I was going into it like with a newborn. Um, but the idea is that every Friday I send out this newsletter, what to read next. And I do a couple of things. So I review one to two books from a wide range of genres, history biography, fiction, self-help, kind of all of it. I just, I read really widely. So uh, those are the books that I cover. And I'll also do, you know, links to other bookish content on the web. I also do author interviews. So I've had uh, like David Epstein, uh, NPR's Lulu Miller I've interviewed. And uh, with them, I ask them purely bookish questions. So I'll say, uh, what are you reading and enjoying? What are some of the books that have most impacted you over your life? Uh, what do you read for fun? You know, do you like kind of stick to certain genres or authors? Um, and I do that roughly every other week though that schedule is not totally set. Uh, so that's the gist. Yeah. I just, I send out a weekly newsletter and I review a couple books a week and that's about it. If you're willing to talk numbers, I'm really interested in your growth stats. Sure. <laughs> so how, how big is your list now and what has that growth looked like over the life of the newsletter? Sure. So I believe I'm uh, close to 3,500 subscribers now. So what really helps, you know, is that I can write a book list on the art of manliness and then put uh, at the bottom, say, hey, subscribe to my personal newsletter over here uh, to get sort of more recommendations. Right. So that was has sort of funneled uh, a lot of the early growth. So I got to like 500 subscribers, a thousand subscribers relatively quickly, probably, um, probably doubled every year. So if I have, you know, 3,500 now a year ago, I probably had, Oh, maybe 1500 year before that, probably 750. It's been a relatively consistent growth, but it has accelerated a bit. So I've started, um, you know, part of it, I've just, I've appeared on more podcasts in the last mm -hmm. few months. Um, I've started doing like a, a monthly book review or book recommendation for a couple other sites. Um, so I'm certainly into uh, a growth mode, uh, which, you know, helps, but yeah, it's really, it's fueled by being able to put my link on the art of manliness. We have such engaged users, um, that that really drives a lot of the growth. Yeah. What's the long-term goal with the newsletter? You know, I don't know. So currently the idea is just to kind of uh, provide a little bit of a, a side hustle. So I've, I've recently introduced a, a paid option 
for folks so folks who pay just five bucks a month uh get an extra article a week and then some other goodies like a bookmark and um and whatnot so the idea there was just to be able to make a little extra money you know we my wife and i just had our third kid i would love for my wife to be able to work a little less uh so to kind of bridge the gap and then ultimately you know we'll see what happens if, if in a few years it it blows up when I get a couple thousand paid subscribers. That'd be great. Uh, I don't really expect that, but but who knows? Uh, what I love about Substack is how easily it integrates. One, uh, sending out emails, just mm. like it's expensive and a pain in the butt to do elsewhere, right? Um, and then two, just being able to monetize. It's so easy. It works right, you know, right with Stripe, which is super easy to use. So I have loved. Substack. Yeah. And it, I was sort of like weirdly an early adopter. I'm like, I'm never an early adopter for anything. <laughs> I, I sort of pride myself on being a late adopter after seeing, you know, the the flaws and whatnot of everything else. But Substack, I got in early and now it's really kind of blown up, uh, which has been kind of interesting to see. So what was your conversion rate when you introduced that um, paid tier? So I have about 150 paid folks now. Oh, wow, uh, that's great. It's pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's, that's entirely optional. So everyone is still getting the, the Friday newsletter. Um, I'm trying to figure it out, still kind of working through actually maybe in the summer, I might go fully paid where we're free freebie folks would still get uh, maybe like every other week, sort of a, a bite-sized newsletter, mm. um, but really trying to kind of go in, go all in on the, the monetization as the media landscape changes. Right. So um, one of the things I talked about in uh, one of my newsletters in the last couple of weeks was um, about how uh, HuffPost laid off so many people, right? So many award-winning mm -hmm. journalists. And it was partially because they are just kind of a bloated VC-funded media company that's just beholden to their advertisers, right? right? So just sort of inherently, right, as as more people subscribe, I, I put more time and energy into it. Um, and folks just sort of seem more willing to to pay for the content that they're getting. So that's that's something I'm toying with. Haven't haven't fully decided on yet. So it's exciting to see where it goes. I, I I like to see all these newsletter writers like blowing up over the last year. It's it's good stuff. Yeah, it really is. It's it's kind of fun to see that that changing of the guard, right? Whereas like if I could seek out advertisers for the newsletter. Mm -hmm. But then I'm I'm beholden to the metrics. I'm always trying to sell myself, right? Whereas this way, I only have to prove myself to the readers themselves, right? Um, and then once they kind of you know see things, see what they like, then they can decide to to pay me directly, which is just great. Do you have concerns about putting a paywall on the content in terms of how that uh, hampers growth? Definitely, yeah, I certainly do. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, that's kind of why I'm still struggling, right, with whether whether to go sort of fully paid or whether to just keep the paid option as more of an extra, as more of an mm -hmm. add-on to the free stuff, right? So I do, you know, part of it is sort of what makes me think is that I will always have a free option, even if it's only every other week, right? Yeah. Um, I definitely want to have uh, a piece of it that is always free that folks will always find value in so that there's a reason to come and, and try me out, right? Um, and there's always like a month free, but you still have to, you have to put in your credit card number, which is always a bit of a barrier, yeah. no matter what. Um, so yeah, I definitely, that's uh, certainly a little bit of a concern I have, but um, I think, you know, the the benefits have, have thus far been worth it for sure. Sure. All right, Jeremy, let's get into some books. I'm most yeah, excited. Yeah, I'm most excited about your recent piece on the presidents. So you've read oh, yeah. at least one biography of every president and you published this huge long piece with all of your recommendations. What made you want to read about every single president? It's a great question. I love answering that question. So it started back in 2016, uh, like I think it probably did for a lot of folks. So I was sure. sort of po politically apathetic, actually. So I'd I'd always been interested in reading history and biography, but uh, the the 2016 election just sort of gave me more than anything else, like intellectual pause. Like, how did we get here? Have there been other presidents like Trump? Have there been other presidents with you know as little 
political experiences him? How much does the presidency even matter? That sort of thing. And for me as a reader, right, the first thing I do when I'm hit with intellectual questions like that is I hit the books. So uh, I just sort of off the cuff came up with this idea like, oh, I'm going to read about the history of the presidency from the very beginning, right? There's like something I just really love about like these sort of huge reading projects. So I dove in. There's actually like this sort of weird small community of people on the internet who have done this. So oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So like one of the guys is, is best presidential biographies.com. Uh, and that, uh, that guy is Steve. And uh, he's for the last eight years or so only been reading presidential biographies. So he'll read, you know, a handful for every president, which is just wow. amazing. I can't really even fathom that. Um, yeah, there's this kind of weird little community. So it, I kind of relied on those other folks for, for ideas. Um, but yeah, I started with, you know, with George Washington sort of went out of order at times because there are stretches where like the, the guys are just really boring and you need yeah. someone to, <laughs> to like just motivate yourself to keep going. Right. But um, yeah, I eventually got there. It sort of naturally happened where I finished up uh, right before Joe Biden took office. So it was sort of this Trumpian era project that I, I read uh, bios of the, the 46, 45 men who have been president. Yeah. That's so cool. Were you able to answer the question of whether or not the presidency actually matters? I was, yeah. So in combination with the reading, I, I answered it sort of and seeing how Trump affected just the mood of the country too, right? Like um, when the president is boring, you don't really notice, right? Which is great. But then Trump comes in and, and everybody notices and Trump mm -hmm. is at the top of all the headlines, right? And so if nothing else, he matters in just sort of the mood, the feeling of the country, um, the president has the power, you know, more so than it would seem to, to unite or to divide. And it's always been like that. What's the most common character overlap you see among the presidents? It's a great question. So, you know, almost all of them um, have had really intense ambition. Uh, which sort of makes sense, right? To get to the very top, you have to have a ton of ambition. But there's also, with all of them, just a ton of luck too, right? There's there's circumstances that, that come into play that you would never be able to foresee that got these men to the top, to the, the very top of the ladder, right? There just has to be some luck. So you can get to a point where you're very successful, right? You're a successful politician in your state where you get to the Senate. But if things don't sort of fall in the right way, then you'll never get to be president. So you have folks like Henry Clay in the 1800s, ran for president four times, never got there. And there was just sort of every time, right, there was something that held him back. Or on the flip side, you have someone like Lincoln, who his only experience was two years in the House of Representatives in the, the late 1840s. And he comes back and was very successful as a lawyer in Illinois and as sort of a, a local political leader. But then there was these winds of change that brought him to the presidency. So I think, you know, the, the hard part, the, the carryover to sort of, I think, real life is like you can sort of always aim for the top. But if your hope is like the, the very tippy top of the pyramid, you have to know that there's a ton of luck that's required, right? All you can sort of do is, is set these goals that you're going to do, you know, the best work that you can, you're going to show up every day and sort of leave the outcome to the fates, right? That's like this very sort of old Greek and Roman concept. Um, you can only show up every day and then the outcome sort of relies on the wider world, right? Um, that was, I think, what was most, most interesting to me. And then also, you know, the the sacrifices that these guys were willing to make in service of their ambition. So, you know, I mean, almost all of them neglected personal relationships. Almost all of them at some point by necessity had to toss some of their morals to the wayside to get things done. And those are hard trade-offs. And so when I think, you know, in my own life, uh, I'm a husband, I have three kids, like I have ambition, but I'm, I'm not personally willing to sort of, chuck all that to the side just for the sake of getting to the top, right? And that's sort of something that that every person has to wrestle with because at some point, right, we do need those leaders who are, are sort of capable of, of rising up and sort of throwing out everything else. But 
Um, it's certainly not for everyone. So everyone kind of has to decide what they're willing to give up, how much time they're willing to give up, right? Time away from, from family and friends and the, the things that sort of make life meaningful to reach the, the tippy tap. I love the point you make about just putting in the effort, doing the best that you can do, controlling the inputs and letting the outputs, you know, come come what may. I think that's such an important and broadly applicable lesson for anything that you want to succeed in. You know, just focus on what you can do. Yeah, and they all they all did that, right? There were no matter even, you know, the, the good presidents, the bad presidents, they all worked incredibly hard every day to get there. Um, then the, you know, the folks who, who didn't get to the presidency, they did the same thing and the, the dominoes just didn't fall. So, yeah. If you could only recommend one presidential bio for every American to read, which one would it be? It's a great question. So this one, I, gosh, I just finished it, uh, this week. So it was not, um, not on my, I published an art of manliness article, my top 10 a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. Um, but I just finished a Lincoln by Ron White. Uh, and that goes through Lincoln's life. So there's a couple of things that are great about it. So one, it's really readable, which is, is kind of hard for a big presidential biography. As much as I love Ron Chernow and his huge biographies of Washington and Grant, they're just a little harder to get through. So this one, yeah. Ron White goes through Lincoln's life um, and really navigable chunks of text, which is great and very much a narrative storytelling style, which is great. And what's great about Lincoln, I very much believe him to be our greatest president because he not only had the the leadership skills, but uh, he was just like a a nice human. He retained his humanity Mm. in the midst of the Civil War. So, um, you know, he was amazingly humble for a president, could could make fun of himself. You know, people accused him of being two-faced and he would say back, well, if I had two faces, why would I pick this one? You know, he was just, he was very, very self-aware. And whereas, you know, there are other presidents you can see just taking that sort of comment so personally and retorting back with an attack, right? Instead of just making fun of themselves. So he was humble. Um, he was someone who, who grew up in extreme prop poverty, lost his, his mother, his sister, his first girlfriend, really um, lost them all to disease uh, and came through the other side and got America through the Civil War, um, and obviously was uh, taken away from the American people far too soon, but I think is by far our most um, inspiring president. And there's, there are pieces of his life that I think anyone can take lessons from, whether it's you know learning how to lead when you're out of your depth, which he did in the Civil War. He was not a military guy, but he immersed himself in the literature and, and checked out hordes of books from the Library of Congress to study up to, you know, his, his team of rivals, his, his ability to see that the people had skills that he didn't have. And he brought mm-hmm. them in and even uh, encouraged disagreement, even though he ultimately made all the decisions himself. He, he wanted to hear all the other viewpoints. So if I had to pick uh, one book, it would definitely be A. Lincoln by Ron White. I think there are eras of American history that are useful to learn about because um, the the tides and the sentiments repeat throughout history. And I think the Civil War era is one of those times. Civil Rights era, I believe, is another of those times yeah. and one that I enjoy reading about. Do you have a particular era of U.S. history that you enjoy reading about? Sure. So, you know, I, I do naturally gravitate towards the Civil War. I think that whole time period is just uh, so laced with interesting characters and um, the reality, right, of of American brother against brother, sometimes literally uh, is just so compelling, right? There'd be such incredible difference between people. Um, you know, one that, that doesn't get as much attention, but I think equally applies to sort of today's world is the, the turn of the 20th century. So the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, you had increasing capitalism and industrialization. So there was kind of a, a tide change in the economics of the country. And then you had someone like Teddy Roosevelt come and say, hey, like this economic, unbridled economic growth is not like necessarily a good thing, right? And then also he was concerned about just getting into nature, being very physically active in an era um, where you know, it was sort of Victorian holdover were common for 
especially like upper class folks to just be really lazy, you know, sit on their couches, maybe play a game of tennis to not work that sort of thing. Um, I think you can kind of see the same thing today, right? There's this sort of unbridled technological growth um, that has not really been harnessed by the government very much, but I think that's probably coming. And people have a ton of time on their phones and there's this um, lack of like outdoor physical vigor and doing things with your body. Um, I think that's sort of, again, starting to change a little bit, but um, you know, this area in the 1900s, the rich got richer and we're obviously seeing that today, especially in the last year. So I think there are a lot of things from that that era that that people uh, could certainly learn about from reading. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that time period. Jeremy, who's your favorite biographer, presidential or otherwise? Sure, man, that's a great question. So, you know, it's it's hard to not choose uh, Ron Chernow. You know, I mentioned him, and his books are not necessarily uh, easy to get through. They do require just some sheer endurance. You know, when you're reading a thousand pages times the, the five or six books he's written. Um, but the way he gets into just the, the psychological depth of his characters, I think is just incredibly hard to beat. So he kind of chips away at Washington's marble exterior. He gets into um, the inner life of Ulysses Grant. Mm-hmm. who I actually think Grant is his best book. Um, and of course, Hamilton, you know, became the, the hit musical, of course, but the book is amazing too. Hamilton was this, it's just a really talented, multifaceted guy. Um, and then, you know, got himself into hot water with affairs and duels uh, and sort of speaks to like the the human experience really, right? Like he was uh, kind of had all the highs and lows of what it meant to be human. So yeah, if there was one to kind of, that I had to pick to, to read the rest of my life, I might picture no. You know, I love Robert Caro and his Lyndon Johnson series, but like Lyndon, it's just such a like contemptible guy. I just have a hard time spending spending so much time with him. So I love Caro, but I, I wish he would hit on on people who are uh, a little more able to look up to for sure. Yeah, the Caro series is actually the next on my list. Uh, I interviewed Eric Rostad a couple of weeks ago. He does the the Books of Titans project. Okay, and he's reading th- he's reading through the the years of LBJ right now and. And he's loving them, but he's said the same thing as you. I've never written evil in the margin of my books so many times. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, man, over like so many thousands of pages to just spend it with one guy like that. And I don't know how Caro has done it right for 50 years to just be immersed in this guy's life is uh, quite a task to say the least. Certainly is. Jeremy, I like to give my guests the opportunity to ask me questions. Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah. So what are, what are a few books that have really impacted you and and your thinking? I'd love to hear. Yeah, I think, so I I wrote an article of four books that I think every person should read. And those books are are Sapiens, Being Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, Our Towns by James Fallows, and On Writing Well by William Zinser. And I break it down in quite a bit of detail in those, in that article. Um, But just at a high level, I think Sapiens gives a really good explanation of the entirety of human history, and uh, Harari does it in a way that's like actually pretty enjoyable to read. And I think it gives a lot of context for our current situation, understanding the different revolutions that we've come through. So I think that's a pretty foundational book. Uh, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, so he's a physician, and he kind of writes about how people die and how they die in different cultures and how we approach it in America and how that differs. And, you know, we're all going to die at some point and nobody likes to think about that. But the more you think about it, the more you will be prepared for not so much that moment when you check out, but like the time that precedes your death. And that for some people can be months, Mm. years, you know, a decade. And if you've thought about it deliberately before it gets to that time, that transitional period of your life will be much more enjoyable for both you and your family members, I think. So that's a a pretty important read. Our Towns is a lesser known book, but uh, James Fallows is a journalist and an author, and he's also a pilot. And he and his wife spent four or five years 
flying in their single engine plane around to different towns throughout the country. They covered the whole country and they would go to these towns and they would sit at the local pubs and they'd visit the libraries and they'd talk to the local politicians there. And they just painted a beautiful portrait of America through the towns that most people have never really heard of. So I think for every American, that's a great way to get to know the country a little bit better. And for anyone who's not American, it's a great introduction to what our country is really about because they found that at the local level, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian, everybody just wants to work together so that their town thrives and that their kids have good schools and that they have clean drinking water. So people work together at that level more so than at the state and the national level. So it was kind of refreshing to read that book you know, around the time of the Trump presidency and all the, the controversy and angst that was going on in the nation. And then on writing well, the, the message here isn't as deep, but every person I think needs to write, whether that's just emails or whether it's notes or text messages or whatever. And on writing well is a very easy to read, simple guide on making your writing better. And if you can write better, your interactions with the people to whom you're writing are going to be more favorable. So I think that's a super important skill for everyone to have. So those are really the four that I think are super important that have impacted me. Have you read any of those? Awesome. Yeah, I've only read, I've read Sapiens. Yeah, which I agree, man, was like mind-blowing. One of those that just sort of changes your entire view of like how the world operates and how it did operate, right? Um, so yeah, I uh, had heard of um, Atul Gawande's book and Unwriting Well, but I was not familiar with our town, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think you'll like that one. It's, it's really good. It's uplifting, for sure. I'd love to finish our conversation by asking you some rapid-fire questions. That sound good? Yeah, let's do it. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to graduate? Oh, boy. Uh, whatever it is you choose to do, just keep at it as long as you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy something, there's no need to keep going. If you do enjoy it, just keep on trucking and you'll, you'll get there eventually. That's great advice. What is a favorite mental model you use in your life? Ooh, favorite mental model, anything related to, uh, like recency bias, mm. just knowing that like my attention and my energy is so often on um, the last thing I encountered, right. That I always try to step back and out of time as much as I can to try to see a bigger picture, right. Especially in the last four years, um, I think there's you know recency bias of you know we've we've never been this polarized we've never experienced this before but really we have you just have to look outside of the the now. That's a great one. I love that. But this next one is I think timely for you. What is one piece of advice you would give to a new parent? Ooh, new parent. Gosh, that's a great one. I've done this three times. The new parent thing. Uh, so I would say if you're a brand new parent. Uh, don't spend as much time on Google. <laughs> Very simply, like man, when our first kid, we Googled, we Googled everything, right? And it, it just was like never good. Now by this this third one, like kids are hardy, love the heck out of them, and you'll be fine. Don't don't worry about their development too much for sure. That's good. Who's your favorite Twitter follow? Ooh, favorite Twitter, like the person that I follow. Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, who favorite Twitter follow? So uh, probably just off the top of my head, there's this uh, guy named Eric Davis. I think his handle is Literary Eric. And he, I think, is an editor. I don't quite know. Uh, but he's a guy who like can never quite figure out his politics, which on Twitter I really appreciate because it's like most of the people are so yeah. obvious, right? But uh, he tweets about books, but then also just like sort of no-nonsense things when it comes to politics, right? Like Democrats are stupid, Republicans are stupid we're all stupid. Why can't we get someone with like any sort of common sense? Uh, so I think he's a fun guy, literary Eric, check him out. All right. Last one. And this is one that I borrow from Patrick O'Shaughnessy. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? The kindest thing. Gosh, that's a great question. You know, so I'll just uh, try to decide here how, how personal do I want to get? And I'll just go all in. So my, uh, my dad is actually my stepdad and he came into my life when I was probably four years old. Um, and married my mom. And then um, my stepdad and my mom divorced when I was in high school. Um, but he, my stepdad, has remained the father figure in my life and that entire side of the family. So, you know, really when I think about the, the kindest thing, 
is that, um, you know, this, this man who kind of stepped into a four-year-old's life uh, became my dad. And even when that marriage didn't work out, remained my dad and remained uh, a grandfather to my kids. Uh, and I just cherish that, 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 uh, that whole family has just accepted me as, uh, as one of their own for sure. Wow. That's beautiful. Thanks. Jeremy, where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation, read your writing, all the above? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. So on Twitter, I'm at Jeremy Anderberg, A-N-D-E-R-B-E-R-G. It's the same on Instagram. You can also find my writing at artofmanliness.com. And my newsletter, you can find at readmorebooks.co. Wonderful. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Hey, thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk manliness and books and all kinds of other good stuff. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.